The following message is by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City. More information is available at our website, www.slcevfree.org. Father, we thank you for your word, which paints a picture of something else to thank you for, your creation. We are a part of that, of course, so we're, we're inside it and, and can speak as if we are outside of it, but, but this place that is, that's all around us, this, this thing that is us, what you have made, it is marvelous. One of the repeated points in all of this Psalm is, you have done great things, you have done marvelous works, manifold works, you are great. Blessed be your name. We want to declare that, and we want to, we want to think about it a little bit, and we want to grow in the thinking of and declaring of, of that truth, that you are great, that you have done and made great things, and we want to enjoy that. So please help us, Lord. Would you come? Would you draw near now? And as we have been singing and praying and thinking all, all throughout this, this time so far, would you continue on with us and would you clear away all barriers, spiritual or temporal, would you clear away all barriers so that we can hear you, can hear what your word says and, and can be moved by it? Lord, sometimes it's hard for us. We, we face a long psalm and, and many concepts in it, and, and we get lost in the details. Sometimes we're familiar with things, or sometimes things are confusing. So, Spirit of God, please own this time here. And we, will you kindly grab a hold of our individual hearts and fasten them to yourself? And teach us and grow us. Bless us. Show us our great, great God. And move us to praise Him and walk with Him. Build your church and honor your name, I pray. Thank you, Lord. Amen. Something is humming quite loudly. I'm not sure what that is. Over the past two months, we've been working our way through book four of the book of Psalms. and We've looked at nine different Psalms and seen in them something of how they relate to each other, one to the other, and then how they advance together. Some of the, the major themes of book four of the Psalms, particularly the theme of the great kingship of the Lord, who is the one and only true God, full of steadfast love and care, sitting on a throne of righteousness and justice. These are themes that we've seen, and now we're going to look at that again here in Psalm 104, the final psalm that we're going to con consider in this series. We're going to see the kingship theme again, and we'll notice it today in a more structured form, in, in the structured form of a hymn of praise and thanksgiving. Specifically, 
In this case, Psalm 104 is a hymn praising the Lord as both creator and creation ruler. You may have noticed as you heard it read that the language fluctuates back and forth between being addressed to God directly and addressing others about him, probably because it was meant to be sung in two parts. But what is a little more subtle and and more interesting and what starts to get at, at helping us understand what this means for us, how to use this for ourselves today, is the fact that this hymn tracks for us and tells us how to read the creation account of Genesis 1 and 2, especially chapter 1. I say it, it helps us because too often we modern people, we read Genesis chapter 1, we read it with a different purpose in mind than what Moses had in mind when he wrote it under the inspiration of God. Too often today, at least, we read Genesis 1 as if its purpose was to teach us science and help us to debate atheistic science. We do that, and we miss the marvel. Let me just think about it for yourself. When was the last time that you read Genesis 1 with your mouth hanging open, astonished? Too often, I, I think, a lot of us today, we, 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 we go to that chapter, we kind of come to it with a figurative magnifying glass, analyzing with a stack of arguments beside us, and we're, and we're really more consumed with what does the word day mean than we are with what it's actually about. Moses wrote it to reveal God and his marvelous glory and to reveal our origin and our obligation and to leave us saying, wow. And then, and then we can go back and we can look and we can try to find what, what does the word day mean. We can, we can look and see if, I was keeping in mind that whenever you're asking somebody a question that they didn't mean to answer, you've got to be careful but we can use it for that. That's okay. But we're supposed to read it and say, wow. Wow. Glory. So Psalm 104 is is here to, to help us sing the creation account and to revel in it and to sing of and revel in the God who, of course, is behind the creation count, the creator, and to see his wisdom and his power and his care for us and for all of the creation, for nature. So it would help us to think and to rest in that. There's great great assurance found in that and to worship. And on top of that, not not directly, but, but surely, it also creates a foundation for what we might call biblical environmentalism. Not, not the whole thing, but, but a foundation for that, biblical environmentalism, because it's very clear here that God made the environment and that God likes the environment, loves it, in fact, wants it and wants to protect it and will do so very dramatically, as we'll see. And so we as people, we should be like him, loving and caring for the environment. This, this creation that is around us, not instead of God and not above God and not as if it is God, but beneath him and for him and for his honor and for his glory 
to use it and to delight in it and to realize where it came from and why, from whom it came and why, and to worship him with it. I think that comes out of this too. It, it's, it's not the main point, but it's, it's certainly implied here. So we'll think about that a little bit too. Psalm 104 helps us to, later in the psalm it uses the word, my meditation, may it be pleasing to you. It helps us meditate on God the creator and his creation. So let me draw out two points along those lines. Here's the first. Look at all his works. Lord, you are very great. That's what it's trying to do. Say, like, look at all his works. And then say, Lord, you are very great. Bless the Lord, O my soul. This is the Lord who is my God, says the psalmist. And each one of God's people, we, we can say this. This is an amazing thing that what we're going to see unpacked here is a God who is grand, 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 the embodiment of the word supreme. And stunningly, we can also say, every Christian can say, and, and he's mine. Like, I, I have him. This is mine. That's, that's an amazing place to be. He is very great, seen first as he gives us a glimpse into the heavenlies and shows us something of, of God himself and of his dwelling place, the spiritual realm. Here's the Lord clothed in splendor and majesty. Kings always try to dress themselves up to say something about themselves. And here, of course, it's figurative language. Here's God saying, I am going to clothe myself in splendor, majesty, in light. It's, it's figurative. He's, God is not a material being. And you can't make a robe out of light, but that's what he wants to communicate. I am characterized by splendor and majesty and light. Here's the king himself in his palace that he pitches like a tent in the heavenlies. Again, you, you can't build a foundation. You're picturing this as the creation where the water was still in the skies. On the water, floating in the sky, you can't put beams on that. It's figurative. But he's trying to, to make us see something that is, while figurative, very real. That there is a spiritual realm with a, an amazing palace and a stunning God served by messengers, by angels, who act like wind and fire, who move and burn up and purify and incline this is God in his palace with his angelic host, high and lifted up. And in verse 5, the song shifts from spiritual to the material. From the heavens of the earth. And we sing of the greatness of the Lord in what he has made. The earth formed from nothing and set up permanently made immovable and indestructible it covers the water until verse 7 he decides to part the land and the water assigning the oceans to their place and like God if you ever hear a voice rebuking the waters Jesus if you ever hear a voice rebuking the waters in nature and it obeys him you're seeing the divine at work God commands and it is why is there an earth and why is there water and sea 
And why are they where they are? And why is the mountain range that's, that's right out here, here and not there? And why does it run north-south and not east-west? And why is it as high as it is? Because the Lord said, let there be. And there was. Let there be rivers and streams and springs. Let there be plants and bushes and trees. Let there be mountains and rocks and valleys. And there was. All of it beneath the two great lights that he appointed to govern it with seasons and days, the moon and the sun, both working under God's instruction. You see, it says the sun, it knows its time for setting down in verse 19. It says that the sun also is obeying the command of the Lord. Do this, and it knows it, and it does it. This is all of the earthly realm. It's warmed over by the sun. It's covered at night. It's exactly where it is and how it is, and it is all full of creatures. Verses 24 and following, you have the earth and the sea full of, you even see the word teeming with, that's a great word, teeming with all manner of creatures, microscopic and massive, all creatures great and small. You look at that, and you have to say, Lord, how manifold, how varied and many, how manifold are your works. And you who made it, you are indeed very great. He made it all from nothing. And then surely, and we should be aware of this, though it's not specified, and then surely he uses means in his process. He doesn't clarify how, but there are underground springs because there is water under the ground and there is gravity and pressure and cracks in the earth and who knows what all else. And grasses grow by how roots spread and seeds travel on the wind and germinate and they're watered because of the water cycle. There's condensation and evaporation and precipitation means the doctrine of providence applies to the creation too how where does it doesn't say doesn't say but make no mistake if, if we can define the water cycle or we can identify some of the means there are seeds there is wind germination happens because god said let there be and it is all of the things that are and all of the processes by which they work, it is all, we call it natural law. There is no such thing. There is no such thing. It's, it's all divine law. God has said, let there be and let it be like this. And so it is. He is very great and to sit before that kind of creation, to sit before it and, and to meditate on it, it does us good. It gains us perspective. It, it brings us into the awareness of an immensity that is immovable when you catch a glimpse of God. Maybe this, is, maybe this is some piece of, 
nobody can really say why, but there's, there's some evidence, some research evidence that says it's good for people to get outside, particularly kids. Developmentally, it's beneficial for them to get outside. Maybe this is some piece of why that is, that you get in touch with something beyond your screen and you see something big and grand and immovable and you hear deep call out to deep. And as you, as you hear that, as you feel it, as, as something even undetectable enters into you, you sense there is grand, there is big, there is something with which I need to reckon, but also something beneath which I can sit and relax. We, we tend to worry too much about things that are, that are here and now that press in upon us. And it does us good to feel the earth is and is immovable. And all the creatures work together. They, they are and they function. They, and all of that is because there is over it God. And so I got a $300 car bill that I don't know how to pay. So what? $300 car bill is a real thing. As are our illnesses, as are all of our troubles, indeed. But do you see, if you move over here and you say, I had this experience this last week, I'm, I'm running through my mind all my problems and all my concerns, and I sit as the rain falls, I mean, it rained this week. Can you believe that? It actually rained. As the rain falls, and somehow I hear in that this psalm, probably because I'm thinking about preaching this psalm, there is something, someone big, really big. And what's secondly most important about that is that and he cares for us. Because there's something good about seeing the perspective changing of seeing this open up out, out of this, lifting your eyes off the screen and seeing the, the vista. There's something really helpful in that. But if you run back through this, there's some other note sung in the psalm. Why did he make the springs and the streams? Verse 11. To give drink to the animals he was going to put there. And the birds, they live in the heavens and they perch, they sing safely in the trees that he made and planted and watered. This is the God whose chambers are in the heavenlies, whose eye is on the sparrow to water it and feed it and give it shelter. In verse 14, he causes grass to grow. Why? So that the livestock can eat. And crops to grow. Why? So that people can eat. And not even just eat. He doesn't just feed us. And protect us. Look again at verse 15. He's enabled us to experience pleasure, gladness of heart. 
to make and enjoy wine and to make and enjoy the oil of gladness and to fill our bellies full with that which strengthens us, feasting. I have an acquaintance who I've seen wear a T-shirt that says, uh, it's a quote attributed to Ben Franklin. I don't know if Ben Franklin said it. Beer is evidence that God loves us and wants us to be happy. (laughs) Ben Franklin didn't know a lot about God. But he got that right. I'm going to put up over here a big category for differences of opinion about alcohol. (laughs) But I'm not going to put over here differences of opinion about what verse 15 means. God made it for wine to gladden the heart of man. God wants our hearts gladdened. Oil used medicinally and and just for beauty. Comfort on cracking skin. And food. We all all know what it's like to have a a food headache or to feel grumbly and, and irritated when your blood sugar drops. And then you eat and you say, ah, yeah. Can I have another one of that? Another one of those. Some more of that. Yes, God intends that. Because he's more than just grand and big. He cares and loves and wants his creation, all of his creatures, and especially his people creatures, to delight. Animals quench their thirst People, strengthened and made glad in heart, birds and stork and wild goat, have a home. The badger has a refuge. That's not just language of utility. It's language of provision and blessing and care. Creatures, each in a place, well-fitted one to the other. This is a majestic God, big who's also a God of care and love and kindness and wants to show us that with a spectacular, material, physical world as a home and refuge and playground. He gives good gifts, bread and wine and oil and a thousand other pleasures too. He opens his hand, end of verse 28, and we are filled with good things, not just stuff, good Bless God. I mean, what, what, think of the difference it would be if, you, if we were sustained by an injection of vitamins and minerals. Tasteless, colorless, odorless, but it worked, kept the body functioning. Thankfully, that's not the case. We have taste buds and noses and eyes. Huh. What a God. He gives us good things. It is so grand and so amazing and so good and so pleasant, this material world made by the one true God who is spirit. The material world made by the one true God who is spirit. And he called it all very good. Once he'd filled it with his crowning achievement, his people made in his image, he said, 
marvelous. Theologian Joe Rigney says, and I'd recommend you read Joe Rigney's book, The Things of Earth. Probably got it out there on the, on the bookshelf out there. He says, God's the first materialist. Yeah. Materialism's not wrong. Materialism actually is really, really good. God's a materialist, the first, the best, the wisest, the truest. And we might add, God's the first, best, wisest, truest environmentalist as well. Because he made this and he loves this, and as we'll see, he protects it and he uses it all for the right end, not for the worship of the environment itself or for pleasure apart from him, but to delight in what he has made materially, physically, given to us, and to delight in that and turn back to him and say thank you, to see something of his grandeur and something of his kindness. Oh, Lord, how manifold are your works. In wisdom, you have made them all. You are indeed very great. Look at all this and, and praise him for it. This is the cry of a delighted, satisfied heart. That's where the psalm goes, because the psalmist, I think, sees, actually, that's where God goes. You track through this. If, if you were interested, you could track through all this, and you could find the six days of creation, and then you'd find the seventh day. At verse 31, where God goes with all this, God says, nicely done. Not too bad if I do say so myself about myself, and I did say that about me. <laughs> nicely done, me. Which is entirely appropriate because God's no idolater. God knows good when he sees it, and God commends good when he sees it, and God worships what he sees as worshipful, and that's him himself, Father and Son and Spirit. Well done. May the glory of the Lord endure forever. May the Lord rejoice in his works indeed. That's what he's doing. That's a very good thing. It's good for us in, in several ways. In one, it tells us that God is ultimately happy. Plenty of us know the experience of, of walking around a home with a parent or someone in authority who is perpetually irritated. How that is from uncomfortable all the way to awful. And I think, mistakenly, some of us put together God and sin and then think, I'm walking around God's earth with a father over me who is perpetually irritated because of sin. From bad to awful, God's perpetually irritated. God gets up in the morning, so to speak, angry, goes to bed frustrated, and I think that might be a little bit because of me, so I better, God does not like sin. God is really, really happy. Because he reigns. He has the whole world in his hand. He's got a purpose and a plan that he himself is carrying out. 
and he knows the end. He knows where it's going. It's not going off the rails. We can't wreck it. He's got it. It's good for us to realize that we, we sit in front of a God who, yes, I, I hope, thankfully, we, we want a God who's displeased with, with what's evil and wicked, right? Yes, of course. But we also want a God who is happy. How do you reconcile those? We'll come to that. But that's where God is. God, God is looking at his works and praising the worker that is himself. He's he's. He's really delighted with himself and what he's done. And he knows it can't be thwarted. And so we, like him, should be delighted in what he's done and worshiping the one who did it in himself. Even now, post-Genesis 3, post-fall into sin, the earth is on its foundation and God is on his throne. And so we can say, I will sing to the Lord as long as I live. I will sing praise to my God. You look at what he's done and look at how he cares for his people. The earth is filled with the knowledge of wherever this is read, we know something about God and, it, and we see God and his glory reflected back in all of the nooks and crannies of all this creation. If you stop and you just look at it, amazing. To marvel at it and meditate on it would lead us into life as we worship the God who has made this. And then it would free us up. I, I, this, go there with this. It would free you up to actually engage with the material world fully, delightfully, to use it like any giver of a gift wants the recipient to do. Like you, you who are parents... You give a gift to your, to your child, let's say a birthday or Christmas or something like that. You, a parent gives a gift to the child, and the child tears it open, and if they're old enough to, to not get distracted by the paper and actually see the gift, they tear it open, they see the gift. Ideally, then the child says to the parent, oh, awesome, thank you. And then what do you want? Play with it. And enjoy it and delight it. If the thing perpetually stays in the middle of the living room floor and the rest of the day is spent, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you, thank you. You are awesome. You are wonderful. You kind of want to say, have you tried the thing out yet? It's got a cool horn and the tracks are amazing. I mean, it, it like moves. I, I bought that one special. Never mind that. Thank you, thank you. I picked it out special. Never mind that. What? what? You want them to play with it and enjoy all the details of it that you looked at carefully and picked that one and not that one because this one's awesome. You want the kid to play with it and enjoy it. God made this and called it amazing to gladden our hearts and put gladness on our bodies and put gladness in our hands and gladness in our community because he not just reigns, but he cares and loves Part of delighting in God and part of worshiping God is using what God has made and called delightful to the right ends, to enjoy it all to his praise, to enjoy it in the ways he had said so that his, his praise and his glory is magnified and protected and kept and multiplied out into other people. Yes, 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 yes. But to use it and to enjoy it 
to the glory of God. To become one who praises him all my life, as long as I have being. To rejoice in the Lord like the Lord rejoices in the Lord. That should be life here in this seventh day of Sabbath rest. You realize the Bible talks about how the seventh day starts and continues. And then, of course, we can talk about the story again. The seventh day is heaven. There's lots of ways to talk about this in the Bible. I'm only talking about one of them. So we are meant to look at this and say, Oh, amazing. Amazing. Both. To enjoy what he has made to enjoy him, to praise him, both. That's the first point. And here's the second then, which may seem at first to go in a different direction. For all of this glory to be enjoyed, evil must be and will be eradicated. For all of this evil to be enjoyed, for all this glory to be enjoyed, evil must be and will be eradicated. Verse 35 may seem like an odd end to this hymn. It's high and lofty and deep and wonderful. And, and if you were to actually meditate on it, it's, it's hard when you hear the whole thing read, but if you were to stop and hang out and think about the cedars of Lebanon that God planted, and you were to picture, if, if, if not a, a rock badger, the, maybe we heard the geese fly over earlier honking, if you, and you see the geese in flight and you think about that, if you were to stop and meditate on any one of those things, wonder. And then you come to verse 35, and it seems out of place, maybe even a little bit harsh. Let sinners be consumed from the earth and let the wicked be no more. How did, what, what does that have to do with this? It seems odd. It seems odd to finish that thing with, bless the Lord, O my soul, praise the Lord, hallelujah. It's an odd connection. So what's, what's it doing here? Well, it may seem odd, but it actually, in fact, makes a lot of sense and I would say is necessary. approach it like this. The earth described here that we, we sing of as we move through this hymn, where's that earth? Because if you stop and think about it and meditate on it, it's not actually all that we always experience here, right? Because there is such a thing as not watered earth, as non-fruitful, not satisfied ground or livestock or people. There's drought and famine and starvation. If I say that, you can probably picture in your mind the earth with inch-wide cracks in it, it's so dry, and the half-consumed carcass of the animal right over there, or maybe of the people right over there. That's real. 
and wine to make glad the heart of man. Thank goodness that never goes wrong. Right? That's a blessing that gives way to drunkenness and all kinds of trouble. And, and the food, the, the crops that we're going to grow out of this earth it gives way to not just gluttony, but it gives, gives way to warfare over the, the land that we need to survive on and from which we need to harvest the resources to live. And, and the animals, you know, all, all the creatures, great and small, all living together in perfect harmony, except that sometimes they do attack us and give us diseases, and sometimes we exterminate and poach them. And sometimes we strip mine the mountains and clear-cut the forests and pollute the waters. All the creation living together in harmony. Of course not. And as a matter of fact, it's worse than, than disharmony or discord. Why verse 29? Why doesn't it end at verse 28? With everything good and very good, why mention of death and return to their dust? That actually sounds a bit like another passage that we're familiar with. Ashes to ashes and dust to dust. That's Genesis Three, right after Genesis 1 and 2. The fall into sin. In Genesis 3, track through Genesis 1 and then the retelling of it in different order in Genesis 2 and everything's great and then Genesis 3 comes along and Satan tempts Adam and Eve and they and with them all humanity become sinners, fall into sin and as a result the creation itself is cursed. Interestingly, if you look at that very closely, the curse is on the creation, not on Adam and Eve. The creation is cursed because of Adam and Eve. And wickedness and like wildfire runs through it all in destructive sorrow. And so we're left reading Psalm 104, and we can certainly see it, and we can see certainly the, 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 the goodness of it, the residue of it, we can see it. But if we then think about it again in all of its fullness, we're left wanting it, longing for it, hoping for it, wishing for it, because what we have, while marvelous, is not fully, completely, exactly all that we read of here. We want, we want this, we want more of this. And so without sanctioning everything everyone has ever done in the name of the environment, it is right we should agree it's a noble instinct to want to make a world like this. To want to repair or renew a world like this. To get it from what is to this. God did. God made this. God wants this. God loves this. That's a right and a noble instinct. But it's not going to work until we deal with the problem of Genesis 3. We can't get back to Genesis 1 and 2 without dealing with the problem of Genesis 3. This world that he made is not what it's supposed to be, what we all want, because sin which ultimately is a turning of our creaturely hearts 
away from the worship of the creator to the worship of the creation itself. The Bible kind of boils it down to, to that level. We all turn from becoming worshipers of the creator to worshipers of the creation itself, and chief among the creation that we worship is self. And that has caused a Paul to fall upon this and wreck it. Not completely, but clearly. When we read that last verse there, oh, let sinners be removed and let the wicked be removed, what we're saying is let this curse be undone and let this, this restriction, this, this binding, this wrecking ball be removed and let what was always supposed to be and what is glorious, let it endure forever and let it flourish and thrive and let us experience that. Oh, let sin be removed. Let wickedness be removed. But unfortunately, that starts getting us about people. Let sinners, let the wicked be removed. That gets more uncomfortable. People. That would be all of us. Who, who are the, the sinners and, and the wicked? People. This is, this is the human condition. The Bible says that the human condition is that we are turned from worshiping the creator to the creation. What, what do we have here? We've got a massive problem here. What should be removed is people who turn from the creator to the creation. So do we have actually bad news and an angry God after all? The Lord is marvelous and good. Great are his works, and this one in particular. This is what's going on when he sent Jesus. He sent Christ, the author of life, into the world to take on the death that sinners, that people deserved. This is the heart of the gospel message. I know a lot of us are, are very familiar with it. Think about that, realize that, that this is the heart of the gospel message, that God has stepped into the creation. The creator who dwells on high has stepped into the creation and clothed himself not with splendor and majesty and light, but with human flesh. And then died that we would not be consumed died in our place. This is the way that we can find forgiveness and can find acceptance with God. This is the heart of the gospel message, which is an important point in itself, but what I want to emphasize here is where that message sits in the context of Psalm 104. This is an additional aspect of the gospel message that we're seeing here. If you think this through, what, what we get out of this is that the gospel is not only about how God has acted to save individual me 
and forgive my individual sins. It is that. And the gospel is not only about how God is saving a people from every tongue and tribe and nation to make a people worshipers of him and forgive their sins. It is that too. But it's stuck on here because it says this is also how God is saving the creation. Oh, so cleverly and oh, so wisely, oh, so magnificently and gloriously, caringly and powerfully in a way that doesn't force him to just wipe it all out and start over again in Genesis. Like, you know, 1A or 1B. This is really clever. God overcomes the curse of Genesis 3 by sending his son to take the curse onto himself. God provides redemption of people in a way that will one, time, one day in the future, one day that's coming, will allow him to say, look at all this, it's glorious. How's that going to happen? Well, the creation that groans now is going to no longer groan one day. Christ is going to come back, make it all new. And the curse will have been, have been lifted up, taken under Christ, stuck into the ground, and when Christ rises out, it's gone. You, you, know, you know the general gospel message, but what, what I want us to see here now is that this is also, I think it's a sweet and, and interesting and unique aspect of the gospel. It's how he fixes the creation, how he gets to a place where I once again have a glorious earth, a glorious universe, a new heaven and a new earth that's right, that's not cursed with sin, that's not broken, but in fact, in every way that I ever intended, now multiplied, because I've enabled to put into it grace and mercy, in every way that I ever intended with grace and mercy shown in it, I can now say, look at all of my glorious works and come and enjoy this. Swim and don't fear drowning. Play at night and don't fear the lions. Awesome. This is awesome. Freed from all evil and all evildoers, it will shine like it was always meant to. And we will engage with it really and fully and completely and fearlessly, safely. Take Psalm 104 and read it, meditate on it. As he says in verse 34, make Make meditation your habit with this. Meditate on it in, in the back room where you, where you have your Bible reading time, but meditate on it when you sit on your patio in the sun and when you have a cookout and when you go hiking. And take this psalm and glory in what he has made and also take it and say, thank you 
for acting to remove all sin from this and doing so in a way that doesn't remove me from this. But actually which delivers it to me perfectly. That's a marvelous thing. Meditate on that. What a work he has done. He is very great. Let me pray. Father, would you help us? Help us to meditate well. Help us to to use, to enjoy the things you have made well, thoroughly and rightly and Godwardly. Help us to commend them to others and to commend you, the maker of them, to others. Help us to do that well. Help us to rest in your control over all of life. You, the great God who is, who made it all, and it all sits in your hands. Help us to to sit and rest with you well. Take Psalm 104, Lord, and, and make it our hymn. And gain from it great praise and and grow in us the delight of praise and the delight of using the creation. That would be a blessing to us. Please give that by your Spirit. Send out your Spirit. And and in those that you have recreated, will you renew us even more? And will you draw other people to you, Lord? Those not yet yours, draw them in. Show them the wonder of your goodness. Trust this to you and say thank you. Your works are manifold. They are marvelous. Thank you. Amen. Thank you for listening to this message by Pastor Steve Clark of the Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City in Salt Lake City, Utah. Feel free to make copies of this message to give to others, but please do not charge for these copies or alter the content in any way without permission. We invite you to visit our website at www.slcebfree.org or call us directly at area code 801-943-0091. Our mailing address is Evangelical Free Church of Salt Lake City, 6515 South Lion Lane, Salt Lake City, Utah, 84121.